Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last lesson, we learned about the amazing events of Pentecost and the rapid growth of the early church. We learned that the new believers participated daily in the apostles' teaching, as well as in prayer, fellowship, and worship. They lived generous lives, focused on love for one another and those around them, which in turn attracted others to their group. Many of their meetings took place in homes, but they also continued to worship God in the temple. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 takes us there. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Two of Christ's original twelve disciples, Peter and John, were now leaders in the newly formed church, and so it wasn't unusual for them to be found together. And following their Jewish customs, they went to the temple for prayer at the usual hour of three in the afternoon. There were nine gates that led from the court of the Gentiles into the Jewish part of the temple, and as they made their way through the one known as the beautiful gate, they passed by a lame man who was brought daily to beg in that place. And Dr. Luke points out that this man had been unable to walk since birth. The beautiful gate was a prime spot for those seeking help, as sympathetic worshippers going to prayer were known to be generous. As was his custom, the lame man appealed to Peter and John for money, never believing that they could give him a greater gift than silver or gold. Yet once Peter had the man's full attention, he commanded him to rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and taking him by the hand, he helped him to his feet. To command something in Christ's name, as Peter did, is to speak with all the authority of Christ himself. 
These two disciples, led by the Holy Spirit, were operating in Christ's power and in accordance with his will. It was the Lord's power and authority to heal that was at work here, and he was working through his followers to perform the miracle. And what an incredible miracle it was, for this man was enabled to do something he had never had the ability to do before. Once healed, he became strong enough to not only walk into the temple courts with them, but to go in running and leaping and praising God. When the other worshippers recognized him as the man that they'd often seen begging at the gate, they were overwhelmed with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Look at verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Notice how this man continued to hold on to Peter and John. I love this picture of Christ's seasoned followers supporting the new believer in his first steps of faith. For it really is a picture of how the church is supposed to operate with the mature believers supporting the new ones. By the time they reached Solomon's colonnade, where those who followed Jesus liked to gather, a crowd was beginning to form. In the Greek text, it becomes apparent that the people were beginning to honor Peter and John, believing them to have done the miracle by their own power or godliness. But Peter was quick to give Christ the glory for what had happened. It occurs to me, you know, that we really are no different to that crowd even today. For when we see God working through an individual, we often immediately suspect that they had something to do with it, that perhaps they're more spiritual than us or are God's special favorites. But truth be told, the Holy Spirit can operate through any of us if we will let him. Christ invites us to join him in the work that only he can do, and when we come alongside him, we quickly learn that nothing depends on our power, but only upon his. Peter immediately took the opportunity to tell this Jewish crowd more about Jesus. In verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter began carefully emphasizing that the God he served was indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Jesus was God's servant. 
God was pleased with Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to heaven, receiving him with glory and seating him at his right hand. Despite the fact that God had allowed all of this to happen, Peter emphasized the crowd's own guilt in handing Christ over to the Romans to be killed. Peter reminded them that Pilate had tried to free Christ at Passover because he knew that Jesus was without sin, but the crowd had rejected Jesus, demanding that a murderer named Barabbas be set free in his place, which, if you think about it, is really the perfect picture of the gospel, that the innocent servant of God was put to death so that the guilty one could go free. Though the Jews had indeed handed Jesus over, it was Gentiles who nailed him to the cross. In truth, all of mankind are accountable for what happened to Jesus. Jesus, the author of life, was killed, but God raised him from the dead, something that the disciples had witnessed firsthand. And it was by faith in the name of that living Lord Jesus that the lame man had received his complete healing. In verse 17, Peter assured them that nothing about Christ had been a surprise to God. Rather, it had all been foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, the word for prophet in scripture means God's spokesperson or one who declares to men what they've received by inspiration from God the Father. Verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Christ, his Messiah, would suffer. Notice that Peter calls them brothers, emphasizing that he did not see himself as better than any of those to whom he spoke. His statement that the people had acted in ignorance comes from what Jesus said on the cross in Luke 23 verse 34, when he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In their ignorance, the people and their leaders had rejected their Savior, and just as God had foretold through the prophets, the Messiah did suffer. He died for the sin of others. God's will had been fulfilled, and yet people were still accountable for the choices they'd made concerning Christ. They needed to admit what they had done. Peter then revealed in verse 19 that God's mercy is available to all those who respond in the right way. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. 
Every person on earth has sinned against God and the only way for our debt to be wiped out is to turn to God in repentance. We learned in our last lesson that the Greek word for repent is metanoeo and it means more than to be just sorry for one's sin. It also means to change your direction. We are to turn away from our sin and turn instead toward God. And as we do, times of refreshing will come from the Lord. When we receive Jesus Christ as the only one who is able to save us, we receive new life from God. Peter then speaks of Christ's second coming, when he shall return to the earth from heaven to restore all things, just as the Old Testament prophets had promised. Because Peter had come from a Jewish background himself, he knew that it was important for his Jewish listeners to understand that what they were seeing and hearing wasn't some new kind of religion. God was building on the foundation that he already laid in the Old Testament. He reminded them in verse 22 that even their hero Moses had spoken about a servant that God would send, a prophet very much like himself. Now, we don't often think of it, but Moses was recognized as a prophet. He spoke God's words to the children of Israel. And Jesus is also referred to as a prophet. But scripture reveals again and again that Jesus is far superior to Moses and any other prophet because he is really God's own son. Peter also reminded them of Moses' warning that they must listen to everything this coming servant of God would tell them, submitting to him in all things, and that those who did not would be utterly destroyed and not be counted among God's people. Peter continued then in verse 24, explaining that God's plan to bless all people everywhere has always been clear. He said, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. God's message through all of his prophets had been consistent in confirming the coming of Christ. And though Jews were the first to receive the covenant that he made with their forefathers, it wasn't just for them. God had promised Abraham that all people on earth would be blessed through one of his descendants. Jesus Christ is that descendant of Abraham. Christ came to the Jewish people first, and though not all would accept him, many, like Peter and John and the thousands who believed since Pentecost, had responded to God's call. They turned toward him and repented of their wicked ways, and they were experiencing all the good things God had promised to do to those who believe. 
There is much we can learn from Peter's approach here as we share the good news of Jesus with others. Peter combined a strong warning about sin with an assurance of God's mercy. He emphasized the need to repent and to turn from our old ways towards God. He confirmed that history is following God's planned course and that it will end at the appropriate time that God has chosen. He made it clear that repentance has a certain blessing, just as rejecting God will result in certain disaster in the end. Like Peter and the early followers of Christ, you and I have a special duty to share this truth with others, and we do well to remember both repentance and mercy when we do. People will not always respond positively to our message, though, and we see that illustrated here in Acts 4 verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men grew to about 5,000. It was not long before word reached the temple officials about the man who had been healed and about the crowd that had been formed. The captain of the temple guard and a group of priests, including Sadducees, arrived at Solomon's colonnade. The Sadducees were one of the main religious parties in the nation of Israel at the time, and in fact most of the priests belonged to this group. And one of the strongest convictions that the Sadducees held was that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, I realize that that may be surprising to us. I mean, how could priests believe that there was no future hope of life with God after death? But the Sadducees strictly followed the writing of Moses, which we know as the first five books of the Old Testament. And because there is no mention of the resurrection in those five books, they refused to believe that it was possible. It's no wonder that they were greatly disturbed upon hearing the sermon, though, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Why, if the resurrection from the dead were possible, it would mean that they had been mistaken. In their pride, they were determined to silence Peter and John, and so they had them arrested. Luke explains that because it was evening, the two disciples were thrown into jail until the next day. This would have been in accordance with the law of Moses that forbid any trial from taking place at night. However, the arrest of Peter and John could not prevent the Holy Spirit from working. Many not only heard the apostles' message, they believed, and one can only imagine how many now trusted in Jesus if the men alone counted to around about 5,000. 
Verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The next day, the council known as the Sanhedrin assembled. This group of rulers, elders, and teachers was really the supreme court of the Jews. The high priest Annas was part of this council, as were several members of his family. In fact, of all of the highest council positions, it seemed that they rotated among members of Annas's family, despite the law's prohibition of favoritism. Peter and John were brought before these men who represented the most learned and powerful leaders in the nation. The disciples surely knew the danger they were in, so when the leaders asked by what power or what name they had performed the miracle, it took great courage for Peter to reply as he did. He knew that they would not like his answer. Filled once more by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter first confessed his surprise that he and John were being called to account for an act of kindness shown to someone in great need. He then boldly declared that the miracle had been performed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the very same Jesus whom they had crucified, but whom God had raised from the dead. So far from backing down, Peter not only confirmed that the healing had occurred, he also bore testimony to Christ's resurrection and pointed out that their rejection of Christ itself had been prophesied beforehand, much like what he said to the crowd in Solomon's colonnade. Quoting from a psalm that they would have all known, Peter reminded them of the prophecy that one day a stone rejected by the builders would become the capstone, the stone that held the entire building together. Here in Acts 4.11, Peter declared that Jesus was that stone. Though they had rejected him, God had confirmed that he is the one who holds everything together. And then Peter concludes with a very powerful statement. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Truly, Christ is our only hope for salvation.
I imagine it got very quiet in the council chambers at that point. Verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. The Sanhedrin recognized the remarkable courage of Peter and John. They also realized that they were just fishermen from Galilee, unschooled, ordinary men, which made Peter's persuasive answer all the more surprising. The only thing that the ruling council could attribute that to was the fact that these men had been with Jesus, and I find that so encouraging. Many of us have not been to college. We may not have a theological degree. We too may be unschooled and ordinary, but even so, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God can use us in a powerful way. But that only comes from being in his presence. We learn his word. We observe his ways. We follow his commands. We yield to his leadership and seek his kingdom above all else. A life spent with him will bear powerful testimony to his truth and will draw others to him. Of course, there was something else that the council couldn't ignore. The healed man was standing right there before them. They were powerless to deny or explain away what had happened. What were they to do? Word was quickly beginning to spread throughout Jerusalem about all that had happened. And so damage control was their only option. In an event to prevent the message about Christ spreading even further, the leaders decided to threaten Peter and John and demand that they no longer speak in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Peter and John refused to stop preaching the truth about Christ, choosing to obey God rather than man, even if it brought about conflict with the authorities. You know, there will be times when we have to do what is right in God's sight, even though it may not be the popular or the safe thing to do. The Bible commands that where submission to the ruling authorities would bring us into conflict with the will of God, 
our allegiance has to be to our heavenly king. And we find examples of God's people doing just that throughout Scripture. I mean, think of Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament, for example. Though Peter and John refused to obey the ruling council, the apostles still spoke to them with respect and even humility, acknowledging they weren't proper judges of theological matters concerning the law as the priests were. But at the same time, they declared that they could not help speaking about what they had personally experienced. The religious leaders made more threats, but quickly realized that they could do nothing further about the matter because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Peter and John had the courage to speak up for what they knew to be true. They were more concerned about God's approval than they were about man's. And as we leave the text there for this week, you know, that should really be a challenge for us also. The writer H.G. Wells put it in this way when he said, The trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbours sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. So which voice is louder in your ears? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would always hear your voice above all others. Father, we thank you that you are willing to use unschooled, ordinary people for your work of the kingdom. We just ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and equip us to do your will. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.